Uh, and this week we're looking at the power of positivity. Yeah. So I'm going to start with a quick survey. Who is feeling positive about where they're at right now? All right, tough crowd. All right, so... Nice. So before we start, what I want to do is talk about perhaps what positivity isn't. See, positivity to me is not wishful thinking. It's not some uh, Instagram filter that you put on your life to try and convince everyone else. Positivity isn't naive. Positivity is something that's really sincere, that, that's part of your DNA. It's part of everything that you do, and it drives you in every part of your life. Positivity is the pathway to overcoming fear. Now, I'm not just talking about fear in the sense of being scared, but to me, greed is a type of fear. Eating can be a type of fear. Guilt can be a type of fear. Positivity is the pathway to overcoming those. Proverbs 17.22 says this, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. As we heard from, uh, from every woman just before, I think Dr. Leaf spoke on this. Professor Michael Shear um, was a psychologist in 1985 and he released a landmark study which showed the effect of optimism and pessimism on the human body. It was the first time that it had ever been gripped up like this. And what he found is that there was actually a very clear and very scientific-based link between your mental state, your, your state of optimism, and your overall mental well-being. I said it, it, it manifested through lower levels and lower frequency of depression, uh, through less anxiety, less distress, and a lot of people knew that, okay? I mean, it, it sounds logical when you talk about it now, but the part that was groundbreaking is, as he went through this study and started to, to take his sample groups and questionnaires and filter it through, is that he actually found that optimism had a physical effect as well. It drove uh, less susceptibility to, to viruses, to colds and flus. Uh, it lowered the risk of rehospitalization in people who'd come out of surgery. And it resulted in a longer lifespan across almost every demographic. Now, I raise this because this year is actually a milestone. That research has now been cited over 3,000 times in other scientific papers. That makes it one of the top five scientific journals of all time, all right, showing this effect between optimism and your mental state and your physical state. The latest evolution of that that you might have heard of is, uh, is mindfulness. That's how it's sort of filtering into the workplace now. It's, a, it's a, an ability to try and separate all your distractions. And as part of this milestone, he, he gave an interview, and this is the part that really caught my eye. He said... We know why optimists do better than pessimists. Optimists are not simply Pollyannas, not naive. They're problem solvers who are always trying to improve the situation. He said, across the board, they're more likely to engage with their world, they're more likely to act on what they can change, and they're more likely to healthily accept that which they can't change. 
And that's exactly what we're called to do, right? In Christ, we're called to go out and engage with the world, change what we can, do what we can, improve what we can for as long as we can, however we can. That's what we're called to do, all right? So that's why today, that's what I really want to dive into and talk about the power of positivity from that lens. And look, to me, there's no one better to be using from the Bible than the Apostle Peter. Because he, to me, is the, he's a perfect example of the power of positivity. He's one of the most truly human and truly flawed characters in the New Testament. Right? He failed time and time again. He stumbled, he was insecure, he was anxious, he was angry, he was uh, ineloquent. He, he stumbled more times than we can count. And yet he kept picking himself up, he allowed himself to be renewed, he allowed himself to be transformed by Christ's message and by the will of God. And that's why I think Peter was an optimist, right? Deep in his bones, you've got to be an optimist to keep picking yourself up that many times. If you are faced with a man, you have just declared the Son of God, and you then take him aside and say, you've just talked about dying, that's nonsense, we'll fight for you. There's some arrogance there, right? But he was an optimist. He always thought there was a way to improve the situation. Peter was at the time, he was a a student, he'd go and listen to John the Baptist preach. I mean, John the Baptist was the most famous preacher that had travelled through Israel for for hundreds of years. And yet Jesus came through and Peter dropped his boat, dropped his nets and followed after him. There's something in following the call of God that is so powerful, so unashamedly, unexplainably optimistic that it changes people's lives. That's the power that I want to talk about today. And I think there's three things that Peter had, that that Peter did, that really allowed him to unlock it. I think as you look through his story, through the Gospels, through Acts, through his letters, it was only when these three things came together that he truly unlocked his power, that he truly did the miraculous those three things that I want to talk about today, one is focus, two, trust, and three is action. They're the three things that are going to help Peter, that are going to help you unlock the power of a Christ-filled positivity. So number one, focus. One of the the more famous stories uh, or miracles of of Jesus was him walking on water and it was in uh, Matthew chapter 14 uh, starting at verse 23. Just for context, Jesus has just fed the 5,000, all right, he's had the apostles moving through, uh, feeding them, I mean they've been dinner hosts to to thousands of people and Jesus says, right, no time to to go and dwell, no time to rest, we're off to the other side of Lake uh, Sea of Galilee, we need to go and, and get back on with this. So, Matthew 14 says this, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, this is where Peter and the other disciples were, was by this time a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. 
But immediately Jesus said to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And this is, this is the power of positivity here. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Right? They're out in the middle of a lake, they're in the middle of a storm, they've just seen this apparition in, appear in front of them. And Peter says, if it's you, you tell me and I'll step out of this boat right now. And Jesus and he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So at the start, Peter was impulsive, right? He was short-tempered, he, he cut off guards' ears when, uh, when he thought he was under attack. He's part of this miracle story and we, we rightly often focus on the role of Jesus in this and the, the fact that this teacher was walking inconceivably on this lake. But the part for me is that this is a story of Jesus saying to his disciples, to his followers, yes, you can follow me, yes, you can learn from me, but at some point in your journey, you're going to have to go ahead without me. You're going to have to do this next part of the journey by yourselves. I will be there on the other side, I will be with you, but right now, you need to go by yourself. They said in there that it was in the fourth watch of the night, and in those times that was sort of roughly 3am to sunrise, right? It's pitch black. If you read the story, the disciples were far from home, they were being tossed about by the waves. They had no frame of reference for how long they were going to be in the middle of this absolute disaster, right? No frame of knowing how long they were going to have to endure it. They had quite literally a hundred life-threatening distractions swirling around them. What it took was for Peter to have a singular focus that as the storm's raging him around him, as all the other disciples are trying to row this boat through the waves, Peter's saying, right, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus right now. I'm going to focus on him. I'm going to step out in faith. And if you're going to step out of a boat in those conditions, you're going to want to be pretty positive that you're going to be all right. He knew that if he focused on Jesus, he could unlock powers far beyond the natural The problem was, as soon as he allowed that focus to waver, as soon as he allowed the other distractions, the, the daily noise, the storms that were around him to filter into his vision, that's when the doubt started to creep in. That's when the anxiety and the, the terror really took hold of him. And as soon as he lost that focus, he lost that power. He lost the ability to commit himself to following Jesus. I found that when I talk to people about focus now, they, it's come to mean that you fixate on an issue for a particular purpose at a particular time. And that's why I raised uh, Professor Shear's work before and the, the work about mindfulness, because focus in a biblical sense, I think, is much broader. It's a sense of awareness of where you are, why you're there, and what you're there for, all right? We can so often get caught up in these, these narratives around, well, I'm, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a father, I'm also a businessman, I'm also a, a brother and a son. They aren't mutually exclusive. 
all right? We don't have to be one or the other and, and isolate everything else out. I think if we fixate on what God's commandment is, everything else flows from that. So focus is about this awareness of what you're doing here right now. It's about being very deliberate in your actions. You're not reacting, you're not being impulsive, you're not shooting from the hip. You have an idea of who you are, what you are, and what you're here for. That's what focus means from a biblical sense. That's what Peter had when he stepped out of that boat. He knew in his heart he wanted to be with Christ, and he stepped out. But as soon as he allowed himself the distractions, that's when the doubt crept in, that's when the fear set in, and that's where he lost it. So number one is this, if you want want to unlock the power of positivity, if you want to take it from the natural into the supernatural, you need to focus on what you're thinking about to start with. You can't have a divided mind. So focus, clear your mind, and look at the horizon. Look at the light of Christ that's there for you, not at your feet. Number two is this. You need to trust in something. Right? No man's an island, you, you can't go it alone. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. And so I think positivity is different from certainty. All right? We don't need to be positive about whether the sun will rise tomorrow. All right? Barring an apocalypse, the sun's going to rise, I'm going to be tired, and we're going to soldier on anyway. Positivity is built on the trust that even though your road ahead is uncertain, even though you don't quite know how many twists and turns you're going to take, you don't know how many potholes you're going to encounter, it's about there being something that you can rely on, that you know the destination you're heading to. Because you see, well, Peter didn't always show his trust in a consistent way or, let's be honest, most of the time a rational or sane way, all right? He never lost trust that he was following the Son of God. And he feared many, many things to the point of compromise. But the way, to me, the way he felt shame, the tears that he cried after he denied Christ, he knew he was lying to himself. He knew he'd gone against something that he believed so deeply. That's why I think, again, he is an optimist at heart. He got it wrong on the way a number of times. But a lot of that fear and shame... I think it's because he feared that he had lost that relationship with Christ. And so despite what actually happened, it was because he so valued that relationship. He knew he had to lean on it. You go back and have a look at verse 30 of, uh, of that story from before. When uh, he started to drown, he cried out, Lord, save me. I think those three words, to me, are probably the shortest prayer in the whole Bible. All right? yet they're probably the most powerful. Because there's no fluff, there's no false humility, there's no um, eloquence, you don't need to think about what you're trying to say. It's this place from a, from a place of raw emotion. Right? It's a pl- from a place of such deep trust that in your darkest hour, when everything is turning bad, when you're drowning in the middle of a storm, you know above all other things that you can cry out to God and that He'll be there and He'll grab your hand right? That is a trust that you just can't buy. That's a trust you can't will yourself into thinking. That's a type of trust you can't convince yourself about. It has to be part of your DNA. One of the 
couple of stories I want to use just to illustrate that is there's a, a great missionary um, of the 18th century. His name is William Carey. And he, he ministered throughout most of the 1700s in India. And the reason he, he comes to mind when I talk about trust is he strikes me like a modern-day Job. Right? Anything that could have gone wrong in this guy's life did go wrong. It was a train wreck from start to finish. All right? So he started off, he was a shoemaker, but before he got his qualification, his master died. And so he had to go as a, basically, a mature age apprentice to try and find another master. And the only way he could get that and get his qualification was to marry the sister-in-law of this new boss. Okay? She was 10 years older than him. That's fine. He, he did it. Just after he got his trade, his new master died. And because he was then the, uh, the only man of the family, he had to take on the business, which was heavily indebted, and look after two families. And all of this was before he turned 25, right? So he's now in debt, he's looking after two families. And he ended up being expelled from his Bible society because he had this radical idea. You see, at the time, obviously we're reflecting on the Great Commission to go out to the corners of the earth and make disciples. But the, the thinking at the time is that was the commandment to the apostles. Right now, all they had to do was continue to live God's word. The, that commission had that had stopped. And he said, no, no, that's nonsense. This endures to the end of time. We're called to go out until everyone has had a chance to know the power and the salvation on offer from Jesus. And so he was expelled. All right? Things are looking pretty bad for him. But over the next 20 years, he, he was convinced he had to go to India and, and preach the word of God. His first five attempts, he ended up losing everything because his business partners were bankrupts that he didn't find out about until they were about to set sail, so he lost it all. When he was finally ready to go, his wife threatened to divorce him because at this stage there were plagues ravaging India and she said she didn't want to take the family. When they finally did get on board the boat and start heading out, uh, it was about a five-month journey at this stage. Um, they set sail, were in the middle of the English Channel and war broke out and he was impounded for 10 months. <laughs> he made it there. He, was a, he had an incredible knack for languages. He finally made it there. What he'd been doing over all this time was translating the Bible into all the local languages. He got there, handed it over and that night the print shop burnt down, destroyed all six manuscripts and he ended up with the £10,000 bill for damages. All right? Things were not looking well for this guy, for William Carey. But the thing is, he never lost trust. I mean, at any one of those points, probably right back at the point where he had to uh, marry the sister-in-law, people would have gone, all right, enough's enough now. I, I need to find another path. But he was so convinced. He had such indefatigable trust that he had to go out and make disciples of all the world, that he kept persisting, kept trusting and calling on God. And he managed to keep financially viable because he was writing all these letters back to the various Bible societies. And they said he was so persuasive, he was so unexplainably positive about what he could do if only he could get to India that the elite of British society kept pouring out these funds to him. Well after every sane investor would have pulled out, he kept telling such a story. His legacy is the church planting mission. 
Because you see, before then, they sent out missionaries in twos and threes to go and travel around and tell the story. He was the first who, because he had circumstances forced on him, he had to go and he had to plant a new church there. He couldn't just travel around and convince the locals and then keep moving. He had to go and set up a base. And when he was driven out of that town, he'd go and set up another one. And he'd go and train people to go and set up a new, cha- a new church. So he turned the missionary movement into a church planting movement that's changed the lives of millions. And to boot, he managed to pick himself up after the manuscripts. He personally was responsible for 35 Bible translations across the Indian subcontinent. At any one of those points, right, he could have given up. He, look, it's not meant to be, but he had such trust. He was so positive about the mission that God had commanded him for that he had this power to persist where dozens before him had failed. He had this power that was so far beyond the natural that he's transformed the lives of hundreds of millions as a result of what he did. And his personal motto is, to me, it's one of the most powerful manifestos I think we can adopt as Christians. He said, he said his life is built around two, uh, two statements. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. That's what it's about, right? And that's what brings me to the final point, which is action. It's well and good to have focus and to have trust, but you need to actually move yourself. Right? You can't lock yourself in a room and reflect and hope and wish that things will change. The journey of Simon the fisherman into Peter the great apostle is one of change. It's one of action, one of constant movement. Over the time, his transformation, he, he had to think about himself less and less and think about others more, think about putting Christ back at the centre. Again, much like William Carey, at any point when Jesus had rebuked him or when he denied him, Peter could have taken himself off into exile. Right? He could have allowed the shame to grip him. Uh, and we wouldn't have had the church that we have today. But he was a man of action. He knew that it wasn't enough just to send thoughts and prayers over the horizon and, and expect God to come. He knew that God had commanded us to go. He was a man of action, and that's the final part in unlocking the power of positivity. All right, if he was, to be fair, if he was scared and if he was anxious while Jesus was ministering, if that's what led him to deny, then he had much more excuse for being scared after Jesus was resurrected. All right, he... I think we don't necessarily focus on it enough, but I mean, the idea that Jesus rose again, the idea that he went out and ministered, I mean, that undermined the entire Jewish power regime that was operating in the region at the time. That terrified the entire local communities. That There was Jewish civil wars that raged for decades afterwards as a consequence of this, all right? It was a dangerous time to be out there preaching the story of Jesus, holding him up as the Son of God, Not only that, the Roman Empire at this time was led by Emperor Nero. And I don't know if you've read any of the the Roman history. Nero was famous for these horrific torture methods. And Christians were one of his favourite groups because he said they were so willing to, they were so confident that Jesus 
was the right course of action, that they would remain steadfast right to the end. He took it as a personal challenge to see how he could break them. All right, this is the world Peter was operating in. This is the time when, you know, based on his track record, he would have gone and hid himself in a cave and never showed his face again. And yet he went out there, he went out preaching, teaching all the way up and down the coast. All right, he moved to Rome and started telling the good news. He was imprisoned, it didn't stop him. The action that compelled him is what made he took his teachings to this supernatural level. Right? To his dying days in torture and prison, he was still writing letters, he was still acting, right? he was still healing, he was still inspiring. He didn't let where he was define what he could do. And it goes back to what I said at the start. Peter did whatever he could for as long as he could in whatever way he could. And so that's my lesson or my uh, offer for you today is that just because you aren't where you think you need to be doesn't mean you can't do anything. Positivity is not this this switch that you flip once and all of a sudden the light comes on and everything happens and you're fine for the rest of your days, right? Positivity is, is a daily challenge. It's something that you need to work on. Because the flip side of positivity is cynicism and laziness. These were traits that Peter just couldn't afford to indulge. Not if he wanted to fulfill the commandment. See, there is a world out there crying out right now for your engagement. They're crying out for the hope of Christ. It's no coincidence that the Spirit of the law, that a verse in Micah 6.8, to seek justice and love with mercy and walk humbly with your God. They start with three verbs, right? To be a Christian is to be a person of action. It's to be someone who goes out there and tries to positively change the world. So the third part of unlocking the power of positivity is this. Whatever you do, wherever you are right now, however hard it might seem to be positive, you've got to keep moving. Inaction is where doubts and fears start to creep in. Action breeds confidence. It breeds courage. If you want to conquer fear, just as Dr. Leaf said, you can't just sit there and think about it. Go out and get busy. That's what changes lives. All right, 1 Peter 1, 7-9 says this, that you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, which brings praise, glory, and honour to Christ when it's revealed. The power of positivity, if you live it out, is that it brings glory, it brings honour to Christ. Positivity literally has the power to rewire your mind, to heal your body. It has the power to turn a shoemaker into a leader of millions. It has the power to turn an insecure and anxious and angry and impulsive fisherman into the rock upon which this church is built. And if it can do that for them, then it can do that for you. And I get positivity is hard, right? It may feel like you're in the fourth watch right now, that it's dark all around, that there's a storm raging, that you have no frame of reference of how the hell long this is going to last for, and you're in a bad spot. I get that. Being a pessimist is easy. 
being cynical, that's even easier. Putting on this mask of naive optimism, this house on sand, that's all too common. As hard as it is, when you leave here today, I want you to make it part of your daily habit, part of your daily routine, to focus on Christ's example, to trust in Christ's promise and to act on Christ's commandment. All right, if you do those three things, if you can build them into your daily habit, you will unleash this optimism, the likes of which the world has never seen. You will unleash an optimism and a positivity and a power of Christ that is so powerful that crowds will listen, that strongholds will fall and that your character will be perfected and will be transformed and it will be renewed and it will be prosperous just like God had intended. Amazing. So good. How good's that, church? Well, why don't we just pray just as we close, just close your eyes. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just pray for every person here, Lord, that you'll help us to focus and to trust in you this week, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for positivity to be in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.